but I think uh, okay, I think everything's plugged in. Switched on. Okay, I'm ready. You guys ready? Cool. Let's rock and roll. Hey, I'm Andrew. This is the Nerve Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this episode. In this episode, I talk to Riley Holton from the Awesome Players Motorcycle Club and YouTube channel. We talk motorcycles, YouTube, and equipment. So welcome to my first episode featuring a guest. So as I said uh, in today's episode, the guest is Riley. He um, belongs to a motorcycle club in Montreal, Canada uh, called Awesome Players and they've got a YouTube channel. As you'll hear, I came across this channel back in 2011 and I've been in contact with Riley over the years and I thought it would be great to have him as my first guest. We did have some technical issues when recording this episode, but I think I've ironed out most of them, so hopefully this sounds not too bad. But anyway, work in progress. Each episode is just going to get better. So, here's the episode. Anyway, I'll tell you what, let's just get going. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, how are things going? Yeah, pretty well. We had a nice little snowstorm today, a little mini storm, which was always fun. Okay, that's great. Yeah, it started snowing here in Toronto today as well. Um, it was raining yesterday, but it was, but it hasn't snowed too much. So are your are your bikes all packed away, nice and cozy in your? They're sitting in the garage, dirty. Oh, they're sitting in the garage. Um, I was watching one of your videos, and I think you said there, uh, what is the what is the limit, um, when you have to have your vehicles off the road if you don't have snow tires. Is it December fifteenth. Okay, great. Yeah. So, do you move all of your all of your bikes into some storage or something before before that time? Yeah. Well, I use, yeah, we ha- I have a storage locker, and uh, in a perfect year, I'll do my maintenance and then I'll get them tucked away for the winter. Other years, I procrastinate and I'm changing the oil in the spring, and they're still sitting in the garage. Okay. <laughs> so, what sort of maintenance do you do before you store them? Well, I do, we've been, you know, I've been doing my own maintenance now for a long time after some bad experiences with the, especially with the good friends at BMW. Uh, so okay. we do everything, tire changes, oil changes, suspension oil, brakes, you name it. Um, the bike doesn't go to the dealer for anything ever. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. But um, talking about that, have you, have you got rid of your um, 800 GS now? Yes, the old F800 is gone. Um, I bought the 701 Husqvarna this three years ago, so I've had three seasons on the 701. Okay, and how are you finding it in comparison? It is um, surprisingly good on the highway. My biggest fear when I bought that bike was that it was going to be a real chore on the highway, but the actual power-to-weight ratio of that thing is probably more than the 800 with me on it. 
Okay. So cruising at 120, if you whack it open, it gets up and goes. So uh, to do an hour, an hour and a half on the highway is no problem. And because it has no fairing, no nothing, the air coming off the front is really nice and smooth. So there's no buffeting at all. So it's quite a nice actual ride. Yeah, I've still got my, you know, I've got that uh, uh, 1200GS. Yeah. And it's a rather big bike. So I, th I was actually trying to think when, when did I first come across your um, YouTube channel? Um, geez, it must be back in 2011, maybe 2012. Wow. Because I was checking back in some emails. I think I emailed you, I think I asked you a question about what tires you were running at one stage. And I that think was that in was October 2013. Yeah, there you go. So I must have found your channel sometime before that. And obviously, I was yeah. quite interested because, you know, there was... Um, Joe and Henrik and Chris. And Chris, yeah. I think they were both on big bikes. One was on the 1150. The other one had the yeah. XP2. Joe was on the 1150GS, yeah. which was actually my old 1150GS. Okay. And Chris started on an 1150GS. Um, and then he bought an HP2. And then for a while, he had, for quite a while, he had both. He had a, an 1150 and, a, and the HP2. Yeah. And, and is he yeah, still the, riding? What, what, what bikes is he riding at the moment? He's still got his HP2. He sold the 1150 a couple of years ago. He's still riding the HP2. He had a pretty good crash this summer and managed to uh, break one of the bolts that holds the head on. Yeah. It, and smash a valve too. cover. Mm. So uh, the bike is kind of laid up. So it's actually over at a friend of ours house now uh, for the winter because the plan is to pull that off, have the stud rewelded and get it back together. But he did a quite a big number on the whole front end, got the whole front end got smashed in the headlight, the fender, the, you know, the, the whole front took kind of a pretty good beating. He was trying to do the, uh, the Dacra rally. Okay. In Ontario there where you try to do 800 to a thousand kilometers in one day. Okay, and obviously that's off-road. The big chunk of it's off-road. So you start at 4 in the morning, I believe, and I, and you finish, you know, uh, 9 o'clock at 10 o'clock at night or something. And uh, they, they, you know, in previous years he tried to do it, and they didn't make it because at some point there's cutoffs, and if you don't make it to that cutoff, then you're, you're kind of kicked off the route. And, uh, and they save some of the hardest trails in the hydro lines for the end. Okay. So you have to do those trails. Not only are they super gnarly and you've been awake for, you know, 14 hours, but it's also dark, which is, you know, for extra points. <laughs> for extra points, yeah. yeah. So, and was so, he okay, though? Oh, yeah. And you know what? It was funny. Of all the crashes he's had, and I've seen some pretty spectacular ones on that HP2, this was just a minor little get-off on a, uh, a gravel road, kind of like an access road that you could drive a Honda Civic down. And I don't know exactly what happened, but the fender kind of got sucked in by the wheel and just pulled the whole front end with it. And then uh, down he went and the cylinder hit a big rock and broke the valve cover open and snapped off one of the bolts. And then uh, poor, poor Ivan, who was his teammate, had to tow him out to get him to a main road. I think it was like 20 or 30 kilometers. Wow. And then... There was a, and, and the tow rope kept snapping because it was abrading on parts underneath the bike. And so it took them quite a while. And then there was about a 150 kilometer, 200 kilometer round trip to go back and get the tow vehicle to come and get them. Oh, so, 
but uh, which was rough for Ivan. But Chris was sitting at a bar, so he was uh-huh. he got the better end of that deal. He got to sit at a bar <laughs> for like four hours. Yeah, oh. so it's uh, but uh, and Joe, Joe hasn't been riding much. He had uh, he sold the 1150 GS and he bought a 1200 GS. And at the same time, he bought a 650X Challenge. And then he didn't ride the X Challenge very much, and he eventually sold it. So now all he has is his, his shiny 1200GS, which he doesn't take off-road. So he's kind of moved on. And then uh, Henrik. Henrik, who was always the perennial uh, cl- uh, you know, crowd favorite, um, he went through a whole series of bikes because I think he started on a Honda 650 and then he bought a DR650, and then he bought another DR650, and then he bought a WR250. Okay. And then recently he convinced himself that running a 250cc motorcycle was too expensive, so he sold it and bought a 40-year-old sailboat. <laughs> and that's his cost-saving plan at the moment. <laughs> that's and actually, I should add to that that he bought a 40-year-old sailboat, uh, and just at the end of the summer, he bought a sailboat from the 1960s to replace it. Oh. So he's now got a 60-year-old sailboat. So he'll be saving so much money, I'm sure. <laughs> he'll be able to afford several new motorcycles. And since, uh, you know, the original core guys, which was, you know, Joe, Henrik, uh, myself, and Chris. Chris is actually Henrik's brother-in-law. Um you know, Joe hasn't really been riding uh, Henrik's kind of, you know, into his sailboat phase. So we've got a bunch of new guys that you've seen in some of the new new videos. So we got yes. uh, Dave, who's a who's an expat uh, Brit. We've got uh, Ivan, who's uh, I think he might have actually been born in Switzerland. Um, and we've got uh, JP, who's uh, works for the Metro system here as a in the office as an engineer and we've got uh jason who's like another programmer it guy and we've got another guy mark who works for pratt and whitney so in the, in the early days of the awesome players i was the only guy who was a non-it guy okay and now all the guys are in aerospace because i think dave was working for rolls royce engines ivan works for bombardier mark works for pratt and whitney um so which is, you know, some pretty handy guys to have around when something breaks. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so how did it happen that they're all in, in, in that kind of industry? Is, I mean, that, is that something that's uh, happening in your sort of area? Yeah, Montreal has, a you know, um, a, you know, Bombardier is here, Pratt is here, Rolls-Royce is here. So we do have that industry, but none of them knew each other beforehand. All of these guys are, are people that... Um, contacted us through YouTube. So basically, guys who were looking at videos either because they owned a DR650 or an F800GS, or they were looking, you know, for trails in the Montreal area, and they would drop uh, drop me a line, and we'd end up going riding. And that happens once in a while where, you know, we get together with someone to go for a ride. Sometimes it doesn't work out either because the guys, you know, kind of have bought a a BMW and all the gear, and when it really comes time to go get it dirty, and potentially scratch it, they just yeah, they, can't, they just can't deal with that. Um, 
other times, you know, we've had guys who come, sometimes they come ride with us for a few times and they're just way younger, more competent, aggressive. Um, and we're just kind of slow and plodding. So they kind of doesn't, doesn't work for them in that respect either. Yes. And, um, and there's this, just a certain, I don't know how I'd put it. There's just a certain kind of attitude um, that we all seem to share that if you don't shit, if it doesn't, if you don't share it, you don't really find what we're doing that entertaining. So, uh, you know, every now and then a new person joins. So I think of all the guys I'm riding with now, which is six or seven, all of them are people that uh, have joined the club through the internet, basically through watching our YouTube videos. Oh, that's great. That's great. So talking about the YouTube uh, channel, I mean, when, when did you start that? Was it back in 2010? We started the YouTube channel back in 2010 just so that we could share really short little clips just amongst ourselves. Yes. And we popped them up on YouTube because it was the easiest way to share them. And we didn't really have any in, any intention of uh, building an audience or, or, or creating a YouTube channel. And then people started watching them. And we had one point created, I think, like 10 stickers. We'd made 10 of these awesome player stickers, one for each of us with a couple of extras. And we started putting them in the videos, a little close-up of the sticker and whatever. And then we started getting these requests for the stickers all of a sudden from all over the world. So we started ordering batches of these stickers, like a couple 200 at a time and then 500 at a time. And then it just became a thing where every day almost every couple of days i'd get a note from someone in brazil or japan or indonesia saying yeah I like your videos can i get one of your stickers and in the early days we were earning you know 20 or 30 dollars a month on youtube so we were just taking that money and using it to pay for postage and sending out the stickers and then about uh, a year or so ago not you know we were on we're like even now we're only making maybe 80 90 dollars a month on youtube we were taking all that money and it wasn't covering costs so that's when we finally decided we're gonna have to start selling these stickers because what was happening was uh you know at our at our annual meeting which is just a little get together we do once a year around christmas we were all having to chip in extra cash just to cover the costs of running the club and sending out all these free stickers so now we actually sell them well that's great uh, well, I just love the story that, I mean, you had no intention of, you know, click up the subscribers or whatever, and it's just grown organically. I just love the way that that happened. And the name Awesome Players, I mean, how, how did you come into that? <laughs> the name Awesome Players was actually Henrik. Um, I think it was a combination of his particular sense of humor and the fact that he's, uh, he's Hungarian, so English is not his mother tongue. And he, for the longest time, was saying, well, you know, we've got to come up with a club name. And somehow in his mind, he came up with this idea that, well, we are obviously awesome and we're all players. And I don't think when he put those two words together, he realized that the rest of us thought this was pretty hilarious. So uh, then, you know, the name just kind of stuck. And then one day, just as a joke, because I wanted to make these 10 stickers as kind of a gag gift, I had to come up with a logo. So I, I spent, I don't know, an hour, 45 minutes in Photoshop and just came up with the logo, which was basically, you know, awesome players. We're Canadian. There's a maple leaf. There's a muddy tire track. 
and in the especially in the early days it seemed like we were always cursed by mother nature it always rained so that's why we have the storm cloud with the yeah with the rain falling oh that's great i love that story 2010 i was looking at your videos the other night getting what six thousand views per video on average which is which which i think is pretty good yeah we you know we we get um i mean i've been pretty you know haphazard in how i've been posting videos um i mean we only started in 2010 and i had well i had my wife and i had triplet girls in 2006. okay so life in general is pretty hectic um so you know just finding the time to actually post the videos and edit the videos um is you know time is at a real premium around here to get the actual video editing done so right now i think chronologically i did put out some videos from 2018 but i think in terms of i'm caught up to like 2014. so i've okay. actually got 15 16 17 18 i got four seasons of footage sitting on my hard drive array here i think i've got like 20 some odd terabytes of footage sitting there um waiting to be edited um okay. and, and part of the funny thing about this delay is you have people like dave um who has been riding with us now for years and for the longest time he was he would complain because we'd go to an off-road event and a lot of the guys at the event would recognize us from the videos but they didn't know who the hell dave was even though dave had been riding with us for like two or three years yes so at one point I actually had to crank out a couple of videos with Dave just so that, you know, the people who bump into knew he existed. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about the, the delay between, you know, the actual date that you were writing and, and, and when you posted. But now I understand that, you know, with your kids, you've got a hectic life there. And I mean, I must admit, I know as well, I've also got gigabytes of um, footage that I've taken writing, which I have just haven't got around to editing. And I'm probably going back to... 2013 2014 so i know what it's like i mean i mean how long does it take you to to edit say one video or one trip that you've done if it's a oddly enough if it's a video like one of the maintenance videos where it's a, you know we, we put a few of those out where there would be a bunch of guys over and we're working in the garage those are spun out really fast because all of the there is no there's no narration all of the talking was shot live so all i basically do is string it all together cut out the boring parts and that video is done but in some of the other videos where we had three or four cameras rolling and you know you'd go out for a couple of days and come back with you know 20 30 hours of footage and of course everybody's starting and stopping their cameras at different times and then interspersed with all that gopro footage you're shooting some handheld stuff with this crappy little sony camcorder that i bring along so just, you know, getting all of that into the system and kind of in order and synchronized and then trying to hack it down and then come up with a narration. And in the early days, I would kind of watch it a few times and write out something. So okay. it would take days. I've kind of tried to streamline it now where I try to shoot a lot less footage. So I'm using the loop mode on the GoPro, which only keeps the last five minutes. So I can constantly be rolling. And then when I hit stop, I've got the five minutes. So I don't have, I don't come back with, you know, reams and reams of footage. And I've cut, and the, the process I have now for editing it is I'll line it all up on the timeline in the editing system. 
and then I'll watch it and I'll just talk during the interesting parts. And then when I've done doing that, I can look at the timeline and see, well, these are all the spots I talked and everything else I just snip and throw away. Okay. So that's kind of speeds up the process. It still takes, you know, quite a few hours, but that's uh, certainly shooting less was a big lesson. And, and then not getting too hung up on, you know, writing it and watching it and whatever. So now when, when you see the, probably going back several years now, when you see the videos, I, once I've got that video chopped together, I press play and I watch it once. And as I'm watching it, I narrate it. And sometimes I'll do a little pickup if I make a mistake, but on a 20 minute video, I might do that narration in 25 minutes. And I just watch it and it kind of, you know, watching the video from three or four years ago triggers the memories and just whatever happened just pours out. And when I get to the end, it's done. Oh, that's great. Because I was going to ask, how do you remember? Because I get the feeling that you, uh, a lot of the routes you've ridden before, so you're familiar yep. with them. And then, so like you say, it just comes back to you when you start watching the video. And it's funny that you can string these videos together. You can watch a GoPro clip from four years ago. And all of a sudden, all these memories come flooding back where you remember, oh, yeah, Chris had a slow leap. You know, Dave was running low on gas. You know, someone had a sore foot. All of these things come back. And that's yeah. why, in a way, you know, people will, it's funny because I get comments from people that'll say, man, what, you know, put out some new videos. You know, why are you putting out this stuff from 2015? And, you know, frequently I've said, well, I can, I'll change the date at the beginning of the video to 2017. If that makes you happy, because <laughs> the date is kind of irrelevant, you know, like. If I hadn't put the date at the beginning, you would have thought it was yesterday. Exactly. So that, that's one of the downsides is, uh, you know, the vast majority of the people, or, you know, the people that uh, send us comments and stuff are very positive, but you still have to deal with the, uh, the internet keyboard jockeys at large. So every now and then we get, uh, you know, comments basically saying, uh, None of you guys know how to ride. You suck. You should, you know, stay home, sell your bikes, or you're riding the wrong. Very common is you're riding the wrong bikes. Okay. You know, and I always respond, you know, if I do respond, I'll always respond, well, I, I thought we were having fun. I guess I was mistaken, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, well, you know, that's what I like about it. I mean, you know, I'm this, you know, the similar kind of person that's, you know, the guys that I ride with, you know, they've got to be my mates. I've got to get on well with them. You know, I don't just want to ride with anyone um, because it's about having fun. And, you know, if it took us five hours to get where we were going and we stopped 10 times and had a laugh and whatever. And at the end of the day, when we got home, we had fun. Who cares where we went, yeah. what route we took? Is it the 10th time we've done that route or not? doesn't really matter. It's all about the about enjoying you know, the, the, the company of the people that you're with. And, you know, it's about the trip and not necessarily the destination. We try and go different places, go to a new breakfast spots, try a new route, maybe invite new guys to come and ride with us. But, um, yeah, it's all about fun at the end of the day. I mean, we all, and every person, even, even the most um, experienced guy, has got a lot to learn when it comes to riding motorcycles. No, and I think there's a... I think for for the guys I'm riding with, I think there's Chris and some of those guys hadn't been riding quite as long. I started riding, 
on the street back in the late 80s. And I remember those days. And I was riding with Joe, you know, the, one of the guys who started the Awesome Players with me. And, you know, those initial days when you first get your motorcycle license, there's just this, you know, euphoria. Like, even though, you know, in those early days, we had horribly cheap, crappy old used motorcycles in terms of the memory of rides that were so incredibly interesting and exciting some of those early early rides are definitely still at the top of that list because the whole experience is so new and then we all were riding on the street um there was a certain camaraderie thing about it because uh, joe and I had another friend curtis that i was riding with and a few other guys they were all guys that i'd been in the military with they were all guys i'd been in the reserves with so when we all left the reserves, this became our new buddy outdoor off-road kind of hobby. Because when we were in the reserves, we were in an armored unit. So we were driving Jeeps and armored vehicles and in the mud and dirt. So this motorcycling thing kind of replaced that uh, mechanical boy camaraderie experience. But then as time went on, everybody kind of got bored with riding on the street because at some point once the novelty wears off and we did a lot of long distance trips and sightseeing trips and then it kind of boils down to well if I really want to entertain myself with the ride I've now got to ride fast and I've got to start doing things which on the road are going to be dangerous or land me in jail or make me lose my license um, so then in 2010 when the awesome players really got rolling was when you know, I'd had a BMW GS for almost 10 years. It had been off. It had never really been off road. And then uh, Chris joined the fray and he was a younger guy and he bought his, uh, his bike and said, I got some knobbies on it. And I had put knobbies on mine and we said, let's start going off road. So we started going off road and it just opened up this whole new world where without having to go crazy fast and without having to go on a, an amazing road that rides along the edge of the ocean or is going through the Rockies where you go, wow, this experience is amazing you could go down a little crappy dirt road 45 minutes out of town and have an adventure, you know? Exactly. So that kind of changed. And then a lot of the guys who had kind of left motorcycling um, that I knew got back into it. And then this whole new kind of dual sport adventure riding, whatever you want to call it, experience um, was much more appealing because you could go for a ride. Like in some of those early videos, we joke about, you know, we're home by noon. We'd leave at six or seven in the morning and we would be home by noon. And we could look back on it and say, man, we crossed a river, we crossed a lake, we got stuck, we had a flat tire, we had to pull a bike out of the ditch with a rope. You'd come back with what seemed like a week's worth of stories from a four hour ride. The first bike that I got was a, um, an R80 stroke seven, old BMW, a 78 model. Mm -hmm. And then I had that for about, um, I got, I think I got that in 2010 or 2011. And then in 2013, I got my, my 1200 GS. And it was purely because I wanted to do um, dirt roads. Um, I had I had been, you know, doing the tar thing. And like you said, the novelty, had, you know, had worn off. It's nice to ride an old classic bike. But yeah, I was I was keen to do the, the dirt roads. And because, you know, it's always different because even if you go down the same road, there's been a bit of rain, you know, it might still be wet, so there's a bit of yep. mud. You know, it might have dried out. The vehicles have been through there, so there's, you know, there are rats and all that kind of stuff. So that, you know, it always makes it interesting. And um, I'm sure this happens to you as well. You go down a, 
a regular route and there's one road that you haven't been up yet and this time you try that route and you land up coming out somewhere and you, somewhere else and you see another three different uh, another three roads that you haven't tried out yet come back again you try those the next time no it's it's it would really be depressing to me now to have a motorcycle where i'd be riding along and i'd see a little two-track trail going off into the woods and i wouldn't be able to go you know i find it, it's you can even see it in the videos sometimes if i'm following one of the other guys everybody when you're especially in a new area everybody's heads are just swiveling left and right everybody's <laughs> looking for a trail uh some sort of entrance and then when you see those hydro towers everybody goes oh a hydro line that's you know that's going to be awesome and see every you slow down and you're looking just looking for that little gap where you're thinking this could lead to 30 feet of gravel and a turnaround or this could lead to eight hours of riding in the woods and there's no way to know no, I mean it's. Uh... Yeah, so tell me about the. So I mean the hydro lines. So basically, that's the electric, um, the electric pylons that are being put out there. And I mean, what do they do? Do they, do they um, excavate a, a section? Because I mean, I've seen it's on the videos. But I mean, is that a common thing? Well, they, for the hydro lines here, they don't let any large growth happen under the hydro lines. So they'll they'll kind of keep that, you know mown down you know it's not really grass but i mean they'll you won't you won't find a you know a 20-foot tree growing under the hydro line so they'll go in there and they'll keep cutting that down and they'll also usually have some sort of a road through there to give them access if they need to get in there to do repairs or if the hydro line's relatively recent they had to punch a road in there to, so that they could build it so a lot of the places in quebec where everything is just solid forest out you know at least where there's a hydro line, there's a break in the forest. And sometimes it's just overgrown and it's impassable. And a lot of the times, I think the hydro guys actually go in there in the winter to do maintenance. But other times, because you, at least you've got the basis of a, of a, a clearing, it's not forested, the snowmobile ATV guys will start punching a trail through there. So the hydro line is, in a lot of spots, that's the only trail for miles and miles and miles. Um, you know that that's the snag with Quebec with, the, with with it being forested is you know there's a lot of areas where there's just not a lot of trails you know we don't have uh, it's not like you can be out in the prairies where you can just ride where, wherever you want you know here uh, we're pretty limited and we also of course um, we don't have as much crown land here in Quebec as you have like in uh, parts of northern Ontario there's tons of land up there that's just owned by the government which has access roads and things you can do here in Quebec I don't think there is as much I mean I guess maybe if you go way up north so we're we're kind of depending on strangers because most of the land we ride on we have no idea who owns it you know if there's a if there's a trail and there's been no effort made on whoever owns this land to put a gate, a sign, anything to say, don't come down here, then we usually just go. And we get a lot of we get a lot of comments from guys, especially from Germany and places in Europe where they're like, like, who, you know, whose land are you on? You know, is this legal? Like, uh, you know, because I think in, in some spots like Germany, there's basically no access to that kind of territory. The guys are always heading down to like Romania or somewhere to go riding. 
you know so we are we are pretty fortunate here that even though we complain once you get an hour or so out of montreal you do have access to some pretty good uh pretty good riding and now that you know the the people who really maintain the trail networks here are the snowmobile guys and the atv associations and one of the uh, some of the organizations for motorcycles now there's the uh, quebec federation of off-road motorcycles they've been doing a lot of lobbying to get us access for those trails so now you can buy your trail pass for a hundred and something dollars and there's tons and tons of atv clubs that now let you on their trail networks which is nice because that's thousands of kilometers of trails yeah, I was because I was going to ask you about that because I, I heard in one of your videos you were talking about. So what do you have to do? You have to buy a pass. That's yeah, you buy a pass, and then that pass is from the FQMHR, which is the Fédération Québécoise des Motos en Route, and they have entered in an agreement with the Federation of ATV Clubs, and all it's on a club by club basis. And every year they seem to add one or two more clubs and then you get access to their trails. Some of the trails aren't suitable for motorcycles. You know, there's some areas where, you know, a guy on a, on a four by, you know, on a four wheel drive ATV with monster tires can go places you can't go on a 1200 GS. But a lot of the trails um, are, are perfect for kind of a dual sport bike. So that's been a real, that's been a real uh, boom in terms of places we're allowed to ride. And, and fortunately, a lot of the clubs now that are closer to Montreal have signed on because initially a lot of the clubs that signed on were quite remote. So now there's, you know, an hour from Montreal, you have access to several ATVs club, ATV club trail networks. You know, like, so when you're riding, how do they know that you paid your dues for, for that pass? I mean, have you got something on your bike or? You just get a little stick. You get a sticker. You have a sticker that goes on the bike, but I must say, we've never, we've never been asked. We've never met anyone who cared. Um, we we buy the stickers. I've bought it for quite a few years now. When we when we ride these ATV trail networks on a super busy day where we see a lot of ATV guys, we might see. I think maybe we've seen ten in a day. I mean, we don't see. And that's probably, you know, two groups of four and a, and a couple of guys by themselves. So it's not very crowded out there. And, and we tend to go early and we also tend to go quite a bit faster than someone on an ATV. Like a guy on an ATV on a straightaway, he might be going on some smooth terrain at a pretty decent clip. But as soon as it gets a little rough, they have to slow down so much because they can't avoid, they can't avoid obstacles like we can. So our, our cruising speed is quite a bit higher. So we don't, we don't tend to run into them very often. And I mean, do you think there, there are lots of people that are just riding on the fact that guys like yourself are paying to subscribe to these? Well, for sure. But, the, you know, there, there was kind of an anti-motorcycle sentiment amongst these ATV clubs. And part of the, part of the good work that was done by these, the associations was they, they would they would invite the ATV guys to one of the big group rides like the Classique, which is a big ride here in the spring in Quebec, which has, I think this year was over 400 motorcycles. So they would invite representatives from all these ATV clubs to come to that event to see who's actually a, mem a typical member uh, of one of our, you know, our organizations. And they see, oh, it's a 40 plus year old guy 
on a 600 to 1200 cc bike with a muffler on it because their view of motorcycles is actually local kids who live in the country who have a 250 two-stroke with no pipe on it. So as soon as you say motorcycle to them, it brings up a memory of them with their wife on the back doing 20 kilometers an hour down a trail and some kid passes them at 120 and showers them with rocks. And once they realize that dual sporting, like most motorcycle endeavors in Canada, is old farts, um, you know, uh, with some disposable income, they go, oh, you guys want to, you know, pedal around on our trails at, uh, you know, 20 kilometers an hour, and you're going to pay for the privilege of doing it, which gives us more money to do trail maintenance, build bridges and do whatever. That's when they Oh, that's up. great. I'm glad. So like back in South Africa, um, so mainly we would be doing dirt roads. And uh, so you get out of the city, you hit a dirt road, and if you saw a small, you know, dual track or something like that, if you went down there, within a kilometer or two, you'll hit a gate, a gate that's locked. Yeah, so we don't really, I think a little bit more out of um, Johannesburg, if you go more into the rural areas, it's a little bit easier. But, you know, in South Africa, it's not that easy just to go into someone's land without them, you know, without permission. <laughs> It's just unfortunate that we don't have that um, that privilege to be able to go on there. So like, so we'll do mainly dirt roads that are, some of them will be in pretty good condition, but when it's raining and all that kind of stuff, it gets a little bit interesting. Yeah. But yeah, unfortunately, that's that's what we're limited to. So I, I'm, I'm very envious of your, of your ability to go out into the forest like that. All the years we've been doing this, I think it's only happened once where we actually had someone kind of get angry at us for being on his property. And, and there's a, we actually have a video called angry man in a house coat. And, um, we don't actually have the video of the incident because I didn't, I don't, I was pretty sure he didn't want to be in our movie, but, uh, we were riding along on one of our usual routes. And then we took a, we saw that beautiful little, two-track trail heading off the highway so we headed off and then we got about 200 meters off the highway and there was a motocross track there was this complete motocross track like sandy hills whatever and i was with my friend jason and he had an f800 at the time and i had my 800 so we started driving around and doing these you know pretty pitiful little jumps and we were taking turns taking photos of each other with our wheels like you know a foot off the ground and we were super impressed with ourselves and then just as we were getting ready to leave this angry man in a house coat he had like this tiny atv like the kind like an eight-year-old kid would have and here comes this grown man on this tiny atv with his house coat open smoking a cigarette and he's like you know yelling at us what the hell are you guys doing here? and of course there's no signs anywhere saying anything like you know don't come here for no trespassing and then when we took our helmets off and he realized, holy crap, this is like 45-year-old men. This is not like 17-year-old kids. He was kind of like, oh. And then he you know, proceeded to tell us that he, this was his private motocross track and he was having problems with his neighbors because of the noise. So he didn't appreciate the fact that we okay. were there. Which, of course, made me wonder what, what bikes are quieter than two F800 GSs with factory exactly. exhausts. Like there is no bike quieter than that. So well, definitely on a motorcross track. Yeah. Were, 
there's if his neighbors were angry that we were there they must be furious when he actually got out there on a motocross bike but that was really the only incident that i can remember where someone kind of came out and shook their fist at us so um and the sand pits i mean the sand pit that's featured in uh, a couple of your videos is that close to where you are that's about 45 minutes away it's actually quite close to where henrik lives and that was something where henrik uh, was talking to some local guys that's something we've tried to get better at now is when we stop with some guy on an atv or a guy on a motorcycle we'll actually ask him like you know where do you go what's where's you know what's the local intel and someone tipped henrik off about this sand pit and that was the first place we started riding you know, even before we had knobby tires we were taking our bikes in there and it's funny because you know we went there this summer a couple of times too and the sand pit keeps changing because they're always excavating in there but and when we first rode in there it was so incredibly daunting you know and you know we we tend we have this habit of naming things you know we have the pipes we have you know the, the these different spots that we've given names to and there was a spot on that sand pit where there was like a curved wall and you could see that guys on little dirt bikes had been riding this curved wall which was about i don't know 10 or 15 feet high and we named that wall the wall of death because we thought you know <laughs> riding this wall was like this crazy uh, idea and then at one point when we actually got brave enough to try it we realized well if you drive up this wall on any bike with any tire and as long as you're going like 30 kilometers an hour, you know, the force keeps you against the wall and <laughs> you drive around this curved wall and you come down the other side and there's actually no way you cannot make it. And there's no way you can fall and there's no way you can get hurt, which then, you know, we still called it the wall of death, but it still, then it felt kind of silly. But that was such a great spot because you had all these different hills and puddles and different types of climbs and drop-offs and everything was kind of soft and there wasn't a lot of rocks so you could fall down your bike wasn't getting hurt you weren't getting hurt um, you had this wide variety of terrain so for years we went there and on a regular basis even if we were riding other places it was always a fun place to go if we didn't have a lot of time to ride and then one year we went and the owner had cut down all these trees and blocked off every single accent access point by chopping down all these big trees so we, we found a local and we were asking him what was going on and he said, oh, some boneheads went in there in trucks and jeeps and just rampaged the place and left a bunch of garbage and a mess and whatever. And, and the owner said, forget it. So for a couple of years, we didn't have access. And then somebody tipped us off that the trails were open and everything was back to normal. So, uh, so oh, that's great. Back. And I mean, I mean, what is its purpose? I mean, is it just some guy's land and there's a sand pit there or... That's it. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a working sand pit because we can see material gets removed, but it's not, it's not super busy. And, um, you know, there are others, there's other sand pits that are much more spectacular than that when that are fenced in and are posted. Um, so we don't know, we don't have access to, you know, 90% of the sand pits, but that one, it's been going on eight years. There was a couple of years we weren't, we weren't allowed in there. And then there's another smaller sand pit that's also in some of our videos. And the same thing, we don't know, not sure whose land it is, but everybody has been riding there. But by the same token, the last time I was there, some guys had been shooting rifles there and they brought some targets and shot them and smashed them and left all the garbage there. 
So, so we were there, we picked up some of it uh, because I was there with uh, my truck. But at some point you realize, man, it doesn't take much for that landowner to just go, that's it, I'm done. I'm posting some signs in, in my land. Yeah that's, a, yeah, that's a pity when that happens. So, I mean, talking about, <clears throat> talking about that, I, I, I think I watched probably the first video when you went to the sand pit and you guys were messing around in there. When you guys started doing off-road or anything, did you guys go for any sort of training or have you just, over the years, just <laughs> through experience, just picked up the skills? Picked up the bad yes. habits. Um, no, we, we, no, we didn't. We just kind of, we started riding. And of course, you know, the, uh, the conventional wisdom would be start riding on a small bike, work your way up. So I think the small bikes we started on were an 1150, an 800, and a 1200. Very small, very small and bikes. Eh? we just went out there, <laughs> very small, and uh, we went out there. Well, the small bike, you know, having a big bike is okay if you're old and you're very out of shape. That also helps. So, you know, we went out there and we just flopped around and you, you know, got better. Over the years, we have gone on like a couple of little, you know, half day courses where, you know, we, we've been, they're free courses that we've been on sponsored by the local BMW dealer, um, you know, where the guy kind of gives you some obstacles and a few pointers, but none of us has really taken some serious training. I think Ivan, who's one of the guys I ride with now, he's actually taken the time to go get some uh, some decent training, which probably explains why he's a, he's a much better rider. Um, but, uh, but no, it was just, you know, kind of on the job, on the job training. Probably the best way to learn. You go to these training courses and, you know, you test it there in the, in the, in the environment and then you get out there and then all of a sudden you forget all the stuff that you were taught. <laughs> I don't know how many, how many accidents have you had? Have you had any that you um, hurt yourself badly or? No. And you know what the thing is I had, I actually had a road, I had my first road accident ever a few years ago in 800 where I was, we were heading out early in the morning to go to the sand pit and it was just Chris and I, and I was riding in front of Chris and cruising along at about 120 kilometers an hour and seven o'clock in the morning, nobody on the highway. And, you know, when you're riding a, a bike with uh, worn knobbies, the bike always tends to feel a bit wiggly and the, the roads here have grooves and dents and they're not that well maintained. So you're not exactly, you know, expecting a Cadillac ride, but I did feel this slight, something was off. And, you know, the smart move would have been to just instantly pulled over. But I mean, I don't know, I, I just kept going. And a, a few seconds later, I was wondering what was going on and, and then it dawned on me, oh, I think I'm getting a flat, I think I'm getting a flat front tire. And then I, I, I rolled off the throttle and there was a guardrail on the right-hand side of the highway and I didn't want to get too close to the guardrail. So I was just kind of drifting over to the right-hand side, slowing down, just using the rear brake. And then all of a sudden the front tire just peeled off the rim. And then I was riding on the rim and I was going to the left. So I was getting back off the shoulder, crossing over towards the fast lane. I had the steering turned all the way to the right to go back to the shoulder. And the bike had a mind of its own at that point. And then the front end just washed out. And I was, you know, my leg was stuck under the 800 and we were sliding down those rumble strips on the fast lane that make that vibrating noise, you know. And uh, 
and then I, you know, the bike, I kicked out of, I kicked myself away from the bike and the bike kept going and I stopped and then I, I, I kind of slid into the ditch in the center median there and I jumped up and it was really quiet and I could actually hear water running and I could feel my leg was wet and it was my, my camel back had exploded. And, and then I looked down the road and I could see Chris coming. And up until this point, I wasn't really scared. And then I saw Chris's face and he looked so frightened that I got frightened that there was something I hadn't seen, you know, like, man, why is Chris so upset? Something really bad must have happened. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it turned out everything was fine. I basically, everything I was wearing went in the dumpster. My helmet was all smashed. My camelback was all melted. My riding pants were burned through. My, my, my upper protection was burned through. My gloves were burned through, but nothing actually got oh, to my wow, skin. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so we dragged the bike over to the shoulder. We phoned Henrik, and he uh, he said he'd be it to pick us up in a half an hour with his trailer. So uh, Chris went to Tim Hortons to get us coffee, and that was it. And I put the same tire back on with a new tube, and all was well. And my crash bars were shaved down a little farther than they'd been shaved down before. But that's really been the only like real accident. I mean, there's been hundreds and hundreds of like tip overs and falls on dirt, but that was the only one that could have left a mark, yeah. I guess. So, but I mean, did you do, um, did you post a video on that um, incident? I did post a video on that crash. Um, I'm sure I've seen it. But I didn't let, you know, I didn't have the camera running on the on the way to the uh, to the sand pit so i don't actually have any footage of the crash so i think i only started recording once i kind of jumped up in the ditch but uh, chris chris had a crash a few years ago before before he actually really started riding with us where he broke his shoulder uh, he put his 1150 into the ditch going too fast through the corner on a paved road i think it was Henrik had a crash on his big Honda Valkyrie where he put that thing in the rhubarb. Um, Ivan, who's got a 690 KTM, has been riding with us for quite a few years. He he actually endowed that thing end over end, I think, twice in one season. Um, who else? My buddy Joe, um, not in recent times, but in the you know I've been riding motorcycles with him for thirty years. I found him unconscious twice after motorcycle crashes. Um, once after about a half an hour, it took me a while to find him, and the second time, it took me so long to find him, he actually regained consciousness and pulled his bike out of the woods by himself. Um, so yeah, we've had our share of of get-offs, but I think as we've gotten older, they've gotten fewer and farther between. Tell me about the equipment that you're using. I mean, GoPro-wise, I mean, you started out with um, what, a GoPro 2. GoPro-wise, um, we're, we're, yeah, we were using some of the original GoPro HDs. And then we got uh, the next jump up was the GoPro 3. So I think uh, right now I'm using a 3 and a 3 Plus. And those work fine. And I know there's been the 4, the 5, the 6, and seven. we on the 7. And sad, sadly for GoPro... Uh, GoPro hasn't really done anything to make anyone really want to buy a new GoPro. They've been slight quality increases, but not that great. And especially if you're shooting in bright light, you're not going to notice it. So, you know, there there hasn't been a lot of pressure to upgrade our cameras on the GoPro side. 
And people keep giving me GoPros too, which doesn't help because a lot of people will go out and say, oh, I'm going to buy a GoPro and start recording my skiing, my this, my that. And they go out and they come back from a weekend with 20 hours worth of footage. Their computer's too old and crappy to play it. And then they realize editing this into something interesting is going to take tons of time with software they don't own and skills they don't possess. So I think I've had at least three people just walk up and hand me a GoPro and say, get it out of my life. And then we have, and then as our second cam, uh, I have an eight-year-old little Sony Handycam that, that, you know, whenever you see a shot where we're kind of shooting someone like in an interview or I'm zooming in on something happening, uh, those are all shot with just a really inexpensive little Sony Handycam. And I think that adds a lot to it because I think a lot of people don't understand that if you have a camera bolted to your helmet, and you drive around and come back and then say, you know, I'm going to take 20 minutes of this, stick it up on YouTube with some heavy metal guitar music. Um, it's pretty much yeah, it's boring. Yeah. You need a story. You need some sort of story, even if it's just titles. You need some sort of story for people to be interested. In. Unless you're doing incredible stunts that are just by themselves, you know intrinsically interesting but if you're just going to ride around and you're not going to tell people how you feel what you're thinking what's happening then uh, it's probably not worth the effort yeah well i definitely like the style of your videos because i mean like you say i mean it's there's there's the two extremes one is you know you're trying to do something uh, that's going to get you on the red bull channel or like you say you're doing something yep. that's interesting uh, you know like your videos explain where you guys are going where you've been you know, the last time you were there, what it looked like, what it looks like this time. I mean, it's 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 good fun to 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 watch. Like I said, I mean, I've been watching since what 20, 2011, 2012, Still watching the videos. Yeah, and I was going to ask how you how you came up with that style of of doing it, but I mean, you explained already in the beginning that it was just basically for you guys just to document your 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 trips that you were doing. I mean, it, it's kind of a it's just a it's kind of a video scrapbook and. It, it, it's a strange process because you shoot this video and, and in my case sometimes I don't edit it for three or four years. As I'm editing it, I get to relive the experience, which is always fun because I've totally forgotten 90% of what happened and I only get those memories back. They're only triggered by the process of making the video and then I'll make the video and post it. And then there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a positive thing when you post the video because you get people all of a sudden there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of an uptake of viewership on the channel and people start you know talking to you and sending you messages and then two years later two or three years later i'll be you know on doing something and i'll say oh man that video and i'll watch it again and i've already forgotten <laughs> again what happened because it's a 35 minute video whatever um so it's kind of you know i kind of look at it as building this archive of memories of you know yeah. these moments um, which, you know, uh, which I think will be hilarious, you know, 20 years down the road to watch them again. Absolutely. And so how many, how many satellite awesome player groups are there around the world? You know what? We're really bad at record keeping. I have no idea. Um, we probably have, I know we've, you know, Scotland, England, there's been a bunch in the U S there was one in Milan, there's been a bunch and, and most of them, you know, Someone watches the video, says, you know, I have five friends, we ride motorcycles, we have a good time. So they, they decide they want to create a chapter, they go out, they make one video, 
they post on Facebook for three months and then yeah. it just dies. Yeah. So that's the normal process. Um, you know, we have probably a thousand plus what I would call like associate members, people who've sent me an email saying I'd like to join your club and I'd like a sticker or whatever. We probably have at least a thousand or fifteen hundred of those people. Um which is kind of nice. And certainly here in in you know, if, if we go to an, an event here in, in locally, it is kind of fun because at no matter what event you're at, there's there's at least three, four, five, six people who will just come up to you and say, you know, hey Riley, where's Henrik? You know, like they feel like they know you, you know, so it's kind of fun to uh, to meet people. And it's a real icebreaker because, you know, you, you, you have an automatic in with that person if you want to start asking them, like, hey, where's a good local place to ride? You know, what's happening in your area? Because they've they've kind of watched the videos and they, they kind of feel like they already know. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, that does happen when you're watching the videos because like you get to know all the characters, I suppose like we don't know the new riders that well because um you know, the videos are still on their way well this winter usually the winter i'll I get off my butt and create some more videos um which i'll do and um and, and also i think in the winter too I, I actually get to watch other people's videos like i don't actually get i don't spend too much time watching other channels videos um i mean i find a lot of the channels i used to watch there's been quite a few that if either the guys have given up because, you know, they did it for years and uh, realized that they're not, you know, it's certainly the people who thought they were going to actually make money at this. At some point it dawns on them that you're not going to make any money doing this. If you want to make money on YouTube, this is not the right subject. And there's also lots of channels too, which just kind of sell out, you know, all of a sudden the, the guy's talking more about boots and jackets and tires and all of this. And, you know, um, and and we've had a, a limited a bit of that where we've been contacted by people saying, oh, geez, I'll send you this, uh, you know, $50 item if you promise to make a video. Okay. And <laughs> you know, it's kind of like uh, not really interested. I mean, we have done some videos where we've talked about products, but all of those products have been products we've used. And in the case of some of the products, like with uh, the company Moto Overland, you know, one of the rear rack that I had, I was actually talking with the guy because I wanted to order the rack and he was designing it. And I gave him a couple of suggestions, which he integrated into the design. Um, and I still ended up buying one. I still had to buy one. And with the other, um, you know, there's another company, uh, Outback Motor Tech, which is another Canadian guy. And he actually did send me a set of crash bars for an F800, but I had already sold my F800. So I I said, well, I'll give them to Dave, and Dave's really good at falling down. Okay. <laughs> He'll test them. But by the same, we, we still haven't we, we still haven't done a video on it. I mean, I just it's kind of a slippery slope where, you know, that that's that is a way you can even with a small little channel like ours, where yeah, you can you can sell out pretty quick if you want to get you know a free set of crash bars and a free luggage strap or whatever, but we kind of made a conscious decision at one point with the club. I said, let's, let's just not go down that road. Let's just make the videos for us and let's not pander to anybody. And if, you know, they're, we're never going to get rich off this anyway. So we might as well make the videos we like. I think it would change the whole, you know, vibe about the whole channel is that having to, you know, like you say, you'd be under pressure to put the videos out. Um, 
you know, you have to say something good about the product, you know, even, even if the product wasn't that great or, you know, and I mean, that's not really what, what, what it's about, you know, you, you're doing it because you're having fun. And it's also been kind of like a, uh, a riding, I don't want to say dating site, but <laughs> basically it's been a, it's been a great way to kind of meet people to go riding with, because, you know, if, uh, if we hadn't been involved with this YouTube thing, basically six of the seven guys I ride with, I would never have met. So it's been a great venue for that. And, and, and even as the, you know, aside from the YouTube channel as a motorcycle club that has, you know, five to seven members, depending on the year, um, you know, a lot of people have said, Oh, you should really try to grow that and do whatever. And I'm like, well, there, there's already a bunch of motorcycle clubs that deal with dual sport off-road motorcycling in Quebec, Ontario, whatever that have hundreds and hundreds of members. And we have no interest in turning the awesome players into that either, where a, at that point, you gotta let anybody join, you know? So now basically it's not really you deciding who you want to ride with. It's these big gaggles of people that all get together, whether you like that person or not. And then the administration of it becomes huge and the same thing. It's not a moneymaker. I mean, all the people who run those clubs, we go to some of those events and the events are really well run and they're great. But man, I know how much time those guys spend planning, organizing, doing those events. So you, you know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, they, uh, you know, like here in Quebec with uh, Moto Trail Aventure, um, I mean, they put on some really nice events and just the, the amount of time it would take and the organizers of the Classique, I mean, when you're going to organize a motorcycle event, that's going to have 420, 30 riders riding five different routes. Uh, you know, it's the, it's a massive undertaking. There's, there's, there's no, there's no interest on the awesome players side of things to try and become a massive motorcycle club either. You know, unless that's your passion, have one of those events kind of companies. And like you're saying, you're running it as a business because that's effectively what it becomes as a business. It's going to take all the fun out of it. And I just don't, you know, I just don't have time. There's just, uh, there's a lot of things going on where. I mean, that, that was the whole reason that the awesome players format started the way it was because everybody was renovating a house, had children, had a job, was in a relationship. So we would meet these guys at these off-road events and they were married and had children. And they were like, well, last weekend, me and Buddy went away for two days and next weekend we're going away up here. And we were like, uh, your wife must be very special because I don't think I could be gone two or three weekends a month uh, riding with my buddies while there's a house and a family and kids and all this stuff happening. So then we realized the only way we're going to be able to get out riding is if we drag our sorry butts out of bed crazy early on Sunday morning and we go riding while everybody's still asleep and it's a Sunday. And you know what? If you get home at one o'clock on a Sunday, you really haven't missed anything. So that's why we, we forced ourselves to do that because then we could go riding three or four times a month because the idea of going, you know, hitting the trail at 10 o'clock in the morning so you could sleep in and coming home at five o'clock in the afternoon during prime time, that just never going to fly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about because I mean, life is busy, you know, I've also got, yeah. I've also got kids. 
But yeah, I mean, I've also got a small little group of uh, friends that we ride together. I mean, we ride with other guys. I was involved with the BMW Motorcycle Club um, in my area. I was on the committee. Like, I also know, you know, about organizing rides and, you know, yep. organizing where to go for breakfast and what price we're going to pay and what route we're going to take. And, uh, and it was just, and, um, but I'm still the guy that organizes our, our, our rides with my little group of buddies, but it's a lot more fun. You know, there's no stress about, okay, we get lost or, you know, the route that we took wasn't so great today or the breakfast that was on the other side, wasn't that fantastic when it was a little bit expensive. No, we just laugh about it. Take a couple of photos try another place next time kind of thing, you know, and it, it takes all the stress out of it. You're never going to make everyone happy for sure. And I think, um, you know, we've, you know, we've certainly run into that too, where, you know, you, you, you somebody decides to, Hey, I want to go riding with you guys. I saw your videos on YouTube. Can I meet up with you guys? And we're like, yeah, sure. So we meet up with the guy and it just doesn't work. You know, like you can just tell the, you know, you have to have a certain tolerance to being uh, ridiculed and picked on in our little group. I mean, if you fall down, our rule is kind of, uh, okay, the guy had a pretty decent crash. If he's not dead or paralyzed, you wait and you see him move, then you can start laughing, you know? (laughs) Um, So, and a lot of people, (laughs) you know, don't like that. (laughs) so you know that's kind of and if you do something stupid or funny i mean you might hear about that for years you know and if and if you don't have you know you don't have a little bit of a thick skin and you can't deal with a bit of ribbing then it's not you're not really going to fit in yeah exactly no i know exactly what you're talking about yeah so i wanted to just go quickly back to your gopro and you were saying that you've got the gopro 3 and the 3 plus i've also got a uh, i think i've got a 3 um yeah what's your battery life like well the battery life um one of the guys i met online actually was making a you know initially i was using the factory batteries and i had the battery backpack which gives you a second battery but then i bumped into a guy who was making a custom backpack he was actually doing a kickstarter campaign that used i think they're called 1870 cells the same cells you use in like an e-cigarette and the beauty was those were like 10 bucks and they were they lasted like i think it lasted like four hours and because it was on the outside of the box of the case you can actually change the batteries without even opening the case so you didn't have to worry about water dirt and whatever and i had that thing for quite a few years it finally just died but i recently just bought um there's a company called wasabi that makes like knockoff uh, GoPro batteries. And I just bought their battery backpack thingy. I'm trying to look at it here. And it actually replaces, it doesn't, it snaps onto the back of the GoPro, but it replaces the factory battery. So you take the door off and it's another battery. And that thing is like the same thing. I think it lasts like four hours. I think I need to get myself some of those. And they're not super expensive. So you, you buy two of them and then you can, if you wanted to, you can roll all day. Um, and you know, one of the guys I ride with the uh, JP, he's a little more of an electrical whiz. He had actually whipped up something, I think where he was powering it with like a, 
an external USB battery pack, which was something I was going to, to do as well. So I, I do like I do like having this big Wasabi battery pack thing on there. And, and like I said, I also keep it in loop mode now so that instead of because initially, you know, the easiest thing from a technical standpoint, if you're going to have three or four guys rolling cameras is everybody rolls, you clap your hand so you have a sync point and you just let them roll. And then when you bring them into the editing system, you line them up on that clap and then you can go ahead anywhere on your timeline and all the cameras are synchronized. But the snag is you're just dealing with incredible amounts of footage. So I've, I've, a, I've, I've taken away guys' cameras because... Having three helmet cameras, it's really kind of the same view anyways. So it's not really worth it in terms of the extra work. So now I prefer to have one helmet camera. I'll have another GoPro on a little mini tripod so that if you get to a river crossing, you can either use it handheld or you can stick it on the ground and guys can run over it or do whatever they want. And then I'll have my little Sony handheld and that's much more manageable in terms of you know, the, the GoPro on my helmet is kind of the main camera. The GoPro on the on the little mini tripod is just for those kind of little action-y shots. And it's pretty easy to remember where they went. And then the, hand, the handy cam is when you want to have something with some telephoto reach. Or you want to be able to do a little on-cam interview with somebody. And the GoPro sound in the waterproof housing is crap. So at least this way, you pull that thing out and you can say, Hey, what did you think about that? How did you feel about this? Or... You're going to do something stupid. Hold on, let me get this camera ready. You know, and that's kind of my technical setup. Uh, so you were saying um, most of the guys that you're riding with now are in the sort of like uh, aero industry or that kind of thing. What sort of industry are you in? Um, I'm actually in the video industry. Okay. I actually uh, work as a video editor. Oh wow! So that's oh. one of the. So that's that's one of the other. It's kind of one of the deepest shames of the videos I put up is that I get people going, wow, that was such a good, you know, such a well-done video. And, of course, I go, that was horrible. <laughs> like, I literally cut that thing together at 10 o'clock at night in, like, an hour, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that, it's also one of the reasons, you know, I think I don't produce uh, too many videos because by the time I come home, um, I'm a little fed up. Yes. with video in general so uh so yeah some sometimes it's uh, i can sit there and go oh man i can be I, you know i've got a video already laid out on the timeline i should just finish it off and i'm like well i just spent eight hours looking at this same piece of software exactly <laughs> yeah. in the mood right now so what's um, um talking about software what software do you use to edit your videos i use a software called avid okay. avid media composer and avid media composer is it's not the most popular software, but it's certainly the most popular software for editing TV series and feature films. Probably 95% of everything you see on TV or in the cinemas edited on Media Composer. So I've been using it for many years, so I'm really comfortable with it. But it's it's not the friendliest of softwares for people um, to get rolling with initially. I think right now, there's so many great choices right now. I mean, uh, Adobe Premiere is is really fantastic. Adobe just came out with another product called Adobe Rush, which is a smaller version of Adobe, where you could even start a project on your laptop and then continue it on your phone or your iPhone or your iPad. It's only on iOS right now. 
There's iMovie on the Mac, which for 99% of people is more than sufficient. Um, there's PowerDirector, which I know a lot of guys use. I haven't used it, but I know a lot of YouTube guys that I've talked to use PowerDirector. There's Sony Vegas, which is another nice piece of software. It only works on PC, though. Um, you know, there's a lot of choices. There's Final Cut X. And Final Cut X is one of those softwares where um, I've done a few, you know, videos with it. I'm so wired into doing videos with the kind of the, 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 the layered timeline style like Premiere uses and Vegas uses and Avid uses that the style that Final Cut X uses where there really isn't layers in the same traditional sense um, just drives me crazy. But for people who've never used another piece of software before, that is amazing. It really is an intuitive way of working for people who aren't, you know, who haven't been doing video editing using the other software. But then once again, only available on the Mac. Yeah, yeah. So you're a Mac guy. You know? Yeah, I. You know what I'm. I mean, I have a PC and a Mac, and both of them can run Avid. But uh, I just find once you're in the application, whether it's you know, an Adobe application or whatever, it doesn't really matter what the platform is. But uh, I just find the Mac life a lot, <laughs> a lot less, you know, jerking around. It just runs, it works. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm editing my HD videos here on a Mac. I bought a Mac laptop I bought in 2011. Okay. And it still works and it's powerful enough and everything's great, you know, like, so it's, uh, you know, I'm pretty happy with the, uh, Little Mac OS. So on your GoPro, what resolution are you doing it? You're doing it in 1080. I shoot 1080 30. Okay. Um, I you know I know you can you know you can shoot 4K. Uh, 4K does give you some advantages in that if you're you're shooting 4K but you're editing in 1080, it allows you to crop in on that image. Um, but you know, uh, you know, I I've it still hasn't been enough pressure for me to go out and want to buy, you know, uh, one of the newer cams that does a nice job at 4k and it can shoot 4k 60 and, yes. and all of that stuff. I don't think it, I think people get really too hung up on some of that stuff, you know, like, uh, and I get the question all the time, I'll put up a video that people like, and they'll say, Oh, geez, what software did you edit that with? As if magically you buy that software, you're going to be making those videos. You know? Yeah. And my response is, you know, hey man, I can I can buy a paintbrush, and that doesn't make me a painter. And I can buy a pencil; it doesn't make me a writer. You know, like um, any piece of software can edit any of the videos I've ever done. I mean, any any video editing software would be fully capable of creating any of the simple videos that we put up on YouTube. You go buy that nice new SLR camera; it's not going to make you take better photos. No. And it's also, you know, like I watch videos. There's some really great YouTube channels out now, and I watch the videos. And the first thing when I see a really well put together video is I go, oh, my God, that guy spent an incredible amount of time putting that together. Like, you know, when you watch one of mine, some of my videos is to GoPro with narration, you know, and then I watch one where, you know, you can see someone kept going ahead of them and pre-positioning the camera so they could ride by and get these action shots and then you realize they probably didn't do that on the first take so there's all this back and forth and and first thing you realize is this video of this ride wasn't really a ride it was a shoot it was a video shoot exactly yeah um and and there's days where i've gone on like uh this year we went to the fundy rally up in uh 
in New Brunswick, which is a fantastic event. And we've been four times and you still haven't seen a video yet. Okay. Um, and this year I didn't shoot any video. Okay. I just got there and I just said, you know what? I've shot this three times. I've already got it sitting there. And it was an incredible ride. It was torrential rains. It was an amazing thing. Swollen river crossings with logs washing down as we were pulling bikes across with a rope. There's really no video of it. Just because on that day, I was like, you know what? I just don't feel like being video guy. I just want to ride with my buddies and experience it. And I don't want to think about changing batteries, keeping the lens clean. I just not going to deal with it. So the GoPro sat on my, the side of my helmet and my little Sony sat in its Ziploc and that was it. And any you know, regrets um, not taking the, the footage? Afterwards, I did kind of have some regrets because it was just such an incredible adventure that day. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, we were riding up the side of these mountains and it was just like a river running down with rocks rolling. And some, there was a, we were doing trails where there was a cross current on the trails and the water was like, you know, uh, up to the seat and we, we were putting our feet down and we, to this day, we don't know what's down there. It felt like a sponge. It wasn't mud. It wasn't whatever. No, none of us knows what it was. <laughs> you know, it was like driving on a big foam mattress that was three feet underwater. So it was an incredible, um, uh, you know, adventure. And some of the other guys did shoot a little bit of video. So I might still piece something really short together, but um, it was just one of those days where I just didn't feel like it, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's to me, like to me, the video thing is an afterthought. I'm, 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 I want to go out and get away from all my troubles and forget about, uh, you know, paying bills and work and all that and ride with my friends and I'll let the video cameras roll. And then a few years later, I'll put a video together or not. Yeah. So, I mean, you were talking about that whole stage photo shoot, video shoot kind of thing. I mean, we've got a couple of guys that, that are pretty good at that in our, in our group of riding. You know, I don't know how much fun they have riding. It can be fun. It can, you know, it can be fun. And it, it's fun if you're, especially it's fun if you're in a place like the Sandpit because you're, you're, you're standing around anyways. Yeah. You know, so you, you might ride around for a bit and then you can jump off the bike and videotape Buddy riding around. So a lot of the Sandpit videos, they lend it they lend themselves to that. But if you've got a bunch of guys, you know, like uh, I did a ride that I actually posted where it was uh, my friend Mark on his uh, Africa twin. And I shot that video and I think it, I edited it and a week later it was actually out. Um, we, that entire day, we just did not stop. Like we, un, you know, we got on the bikes and we started riding and we got to where the restaurant we wanted to go was X hours later and it was closed and we turned around and we came back and that was it. And there was literally, there was no time to do anything. And, you know, there was not even time to like, okay, you're going to climb that hill. Let me, I mean, we just rolled for the entire day. And there was a few spots where there was a, you know, a big hill climb or something where we managed to stop for a minute because we were thinking, are we going to be able to make it? But um, you know, stopping to set up the camera and doing th it would have ruined that day. But I think I watched that video you know? the other day. Um, was that the one where you guys were going up the hydro line um, yep. route and then there was lots of rocks and you decided to turn around and go back? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a great video. I mean, it was. And there's nothing in it. There's just the camera stuck to the side of my helmet and like three shots from the little Sony. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah. You know, um, and that hill was, I got to say, Mark, when, you know, we got to that hill and Mark was like, I'm going to give it a shot. And I was sitting there on the 701 going, oh my God, if he makes it up that hill, 
I'm going to have to go. (laughs) So part of me was cheering for him, like, go, Mark, go, because, man, if you make it up that hill, you're going to have to go get your riding pants let out for your balls. Exactly, yeah. Um, But if you make it up, then I'm going to have to try. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's funny. I think sometimes people don't appreciate how steep those 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 routes are that you guys are taking because, like you say, oh, yeah. the, the GoPro makes it look a lot flatter than it actually is. That one that Mark tried to go up with those big baby head rocks, uh, I mean, I walked up at one point and I was having trouble walking up that hill, okay. you know, just with stuff rolling and whatever. So it's like, yeah, that, that, was, that was steep and, you know, and people... You know, even the, the rocks, people don't realize when you're climbing something like that, you just got to hit one rock the wrong way where you get off course and it's all over. Yeah, exactly. So the, the odds of you making it up, you know, hitting 500 rocks <laughs> and hitting all of them perfectly on, especially on a bike as big and heavy as that. That Africa uh, twin. Yeah. Africa twin. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you don't make it up the first time, you, the second time, now you're tired and your body's already got the little voice saying, Oh, I remember what happened last time mm-hmm. we failed, <laughs> you know? So it's kind of the double whammy, which is why in some of those, you know, some of the rides we've done on that type of terrain, it's almost like going first is better Yes. because you come around the corner, you see that hill you're rolling along and you just go for it. And all of a sudden you're at the top of the hill and you go, Oh my God, I can't believe I made it. Well, if you're the fourth guy in line and three of the guys, you know, two of the guys don't make it. Yeah. And now you're thinking, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the times you're better off just being the hard charger who goes up first. And, and you know, if you get a lucky break, sometimes you make it. Um, it certainly is easier on the 701 than it was on the 800. Yes. But, uh, but someone like Mark, um, before he had the, seven, the, the Africa Twin, he had a Super Tenere. And, man, I've just seen him take that bike, you know, incredible places where uh and on some of the group rides we've been on too uh other guys on super teneres and 1200 gs adventures where you're like man like uh you know they're those bikes can go places you would just never imagine if you're willing to try and you're willing to let it get scratched and oddly enough other than chris's accident he just had where he you know did some damage to his bike after all these years and all these bikes there's never been any big, nothing major has ever happened. Like on my 800 GS, I put a log through the front fender okay. and I broke the plastic heel piece that keeps your left heel off the muffler. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you watch, you know, you calculate how many times that bike fell. Yeah. Just the, just the, just the falls that are in the videos. Um, you know, especially if, you know, if you're cruising down a road and you toss it off into the woods at a hundred kilometers an hour, yeah, that's not good. But if you're just driving around at kind of, uh, you know, hobbyist speed, trying to climb hills where you don't make it and you run out of steam and you fall over, mm. all of the bikes, whether it's been the Hondas, the Yamahas, whatever, man, they just take these incredible beatings and exactly. they still get you home. Yeah, I've dropped, uh, I've dropped my my 1200 a couple of times. I've got decent uh, crash bars on. I think the worst thing that I've done is I've broken a mirror. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, it's got scratches. It's got some war scars on there, you know, battle scars on there. It's it's you know, yeah. it definitely looks like it's been ridden, but um, yeah, nothing yeah. major has happened. Touch wood, eh? Touch and wood. there, 
No, and they are, you know what, they are just, in, you know, the, these machines, and even with the electronics, when I, you know, when the people started buying the F800GSs and they had the CAN bus system and fuel yes. injection and all this, all the guys who were like, oh my God, you know, what about water and dust? Oddly enough, it was the simple carbureted bikes that we always had problems, problems with. with yeah. the, the fuel injected bikes ran, and as far as the black box and the electronics, I mean, my F800 was totally submerged underwater. Okay. I dropped that thing in a lake and it was gone, you know, briefly. Like yes. I, it went under the boat and I pulled it out. The headlights exploded because they filled with water. We dragged it out and got it started and <laughs> drove it for another five years. You know, like the, uh, the state of current, uh, you know, fuel injection and electronics is... Yeah, it's incredible. Like I, I wouldn't own a carbureted. I my Ural is carbureted, but I would not own a carbureted bike. I was going to ask you. Yeah, the Ural was kind of a. <laughs> it was a stopgap bike because I went down to the BMW dealer two thousand eight, and I wanted to buy this new F eight hundred because my eleven fifty was a beast, and I and I started to have this little inkling that getting into off roading might be fun, so. Joe and I both ordered F800 GSs, and then in the spring, we got a call saying, oh, we're not going to bring any in this year. Oh, no. I think, I don't know if they were selling like hotcakes in Europe or something, so there's going to be no, you're not going to have a bike in the spring. So I was like, well, that's going to be an issue. So then I thought, you know what, I've seen these Urals, I've been reading about them, they seem like a bit of a laugh. I'll buy one, and I'll ride it for one summer. And then when the F800s come in next year, I'll sell it. And at least I'll have had this bike for yes. a year. So I bought it and it's just a weird, bizarre machine. I mean, it's not a motorcycle. It's really just a car with one <laughs> wheel missing. Um, and it handles like it. So bought it and then the year was up and I said, okay, it's time to go. And oddly enough, it was my wife who said, no, you can't sell that thing. So I said, uh, well, when the wife says, don't sell yeah, the motorcycle, you listen. You listen. You listen. And then I didn't, it wasn't riding it as much, obviously, because I had a, you know, another bike. And then the next year I said, I'll sell it. No. And then finally, I think it was the third time I tried to sell it. I had a fellow from Ottawa coming to, okay. to buy it. And she said, and she had agreed okay. to let me sell it. And then uh, she said, no, don't sell it. And I said, oh, so I phoned the poor guy and said, yeah. sorry, dude it's off and then i res i resigned myself to being forced to own that thing. and i mean what's it like to ride it's uh, it's it's bizarre because um it isn't a motorcycle when you go around a corner and you turn right the bike leans left um you know when you when you turn left you're a hero because the weight's going on to the sidecar so you can go really <laughs> fast and take left hand turns but when you go right the sidecar wants to lift and it feels horrible and as soon as the sidecar lifts, it actually becomes a motorcycle again. Um, so I've had that thing for quite a few years. It's only got, I don't know, seven or 8,000 kilometers on it. Um, and I haven't had any mechanical issues with it at all. And it's all been stop and go driving. I mean, and those are not highway miles. And I use it to drive around with the kids, go to Costco, <laughs> do whatever. Uh, it's a super fun bike because everywhere you go, everybody waves, the police wave. Uh, you stop somewhere, people come up and talk to you. I mean, I've had, I had a lady at the, at the shopping, you know, the grocery store come up to me and say, her first words out of her mouth were, I hate motorcycles. Okay. <laughs> and I said, 
okay. And she said, but I love this thing, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's just that kind of thing where, you know, I think we have a video, there's a video of my wife and I, when we went up to Northern Ontario, where we, we showed up to watch a parade. And as we were driving up to watch this parade, the parade marshal said, Oh, you're here just in time, pull in behind that army truck, the parade starting in five minutes. <laughs> and we just pulled in behind this army truck and we did the entire parade. Oh, well done. You know, so it's just that kind of machine where it just doors open, you know, like a, my, my daughter and I were driving by the veterans hospital here in Montreal and we were following an old car. We just saw this antique car and we just started following it saying, maybe it's going to an antique car show. We got nothing to do. And the antique car turned into the veterans hospital. So we turned and a guy at the gate said, Oh, you're here just in time. All the military vehicles are parking over there. <laughs> and we drove up and parked on this hill with all these old Jeeps and trucks and whatever else. And it was like this open house day for the veterans with all these antique cars and military vehicles. And we just pulled up on the hill, pretended we knew what we were doing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a fun machine. You yeah, know? that's great. But um, yeah, there are a couple um, in South Africa. There's a company down in Cape Town that uh, runs tours um, with them. I think they're about four or five of them. With your house? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And they like, yeah, so tourists or people that want to go around, you know, the peninsula, the Cape, they take them to Cape Point and yeah. So you see them knocking around um, over December. Uh, doing See, that would be scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be scary because learning how to ride that thing yeah. um, is, it's, uh, it's quite, it is, re it is really different than riding a regular motorcycle. And, and uh, you know, everybody at the beginning has, I think, a few scary experiences where, you know, you, you kind of forget it's not a motorcycle and you're, you go around a corner a little fast and you feel it starting to tip the wrong way. So mm. you're, you know, if you were on a two-wheeled motorcycle, when it tips the wrong way, you turn in the direction. Yeah, exactly. To kind of catch the yeah. bike from. So when you do that on a Ural, like I, the first time it happened to me, I was going around a corner, a right-hander, and I was going a, a little faster than I should have, and I felt the bike get that weird. Why am I leaning the wrong way? So I instinctively turned the steering to the left, and now you're in the incoming lane. You know? Oh, nice. So <laughs> yeah, and it takes you a while to kind of figure out also how far you can, you know, how much of that queasy feeling you can get when you're leaning the wrong way without the sidecar actually lifting yeah you know like if you throw a you know if i throw joe in the sidecar uh you know life's a lot better because you know you got uh, well i was gonna say dead weight but yeah. let's say ballast <laughs> you know you've got all this ballast in the sidecar so that helps a lot yeah no that's great uh, being great chatting yeah it was really nice chatting with you and that was the end of the podcast um, Riley and I had arranged to talk for an hour and we ended up talking for almost two hours. So it was a great conversation and I'm sure I'll have Riley on again at some stage because we had so many things to talk about. Just a correction, the sidecar tours that is run in Cape Town, they are actually CJ75s or CJ750s, not Urals. To sort that out, while I was down in Cape Town, spoiler alert, I had a chat with the owner of Sidecar South Africa. So watch out for that episode coming in the future. And that, my friends, is the end.